There's a number of you in here who are really gifted with, uh, working with your hands. And as I get to know all the families here at Redeemer, I discover that some of you, you work with your hands professionally, um, and others, uh, it might not be your profession, but you're, you're brilliant. Some of you have built houses. Some of you can design houses. Some of you can do renovations. Some of you have built uh, hot rods, bolt by bolt, in your garage. Some others of you are mechanics. I mean, whether it's your profession or not, a lot of you guys are really gifted. I, on the other hand, am not. Uh, I worked for a few years in, in southern Ontario uh, throughout these uh, Holstein barns, and the guy that I worked with, I did this job for about two years, and he used to call my hammer the quarter pounder. He's like, because, you know, one in every four nails you hit, you know. And, uh, so I'm not really that good. There's some things I can do at the house. Um, you know, I can paint. Uh, I can do some minor, minor, super minor things. But I really cannot. Actually, I just said I can paint. My family started laughing on the front row. Maybe I can't paint. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm having a, a moment of self-awareness now in front of you publicly. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it's the... Okay, thank you. It's, Susan's helping me out. It's the, it's the puttying and sanding that, yeah. So, but the, the, point, the point is that if I was to try and uh, do a do-it-yourself project... I would, really need, I would really need some expertise from the outside. And um, in Galatia, the church uh, had taken this justification, which is a word that means being, having right standing before God, and they had tried to turn that into a do-it-yourself project. They had taken the justification of Christ out of the nail-pierced hands of Jesus and put them into the sin-soiled hands of the church and said, you know, we're going to do a do-it-yourself project and we're going to make ourselves okay before God. Today's text is from Galatians chapter 4. In a minute, I'm going to read it. It's verses 21 to 31. And what Paul wants to do, as as I'm going to set this text up so we understand because we're coming in mid-conversation, but what Paul wants to do is he wants the church to understand the foolishness of trusting in their own performance to secure God's promise. So this text we're about to read is actually an analogy, or an allegory. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you a story. I need you to, I need you to get grasp um, the gravity of not trusting in tri- Christ, but trusting in your own work. So he says, I've got to give you an allegory. Now you parents have done this. As parents, we do this. We tell our children stories. We tell them allegories. When I say tell them a story, I don't mean tell them something that isn't true, a fable You'll often, as parents, say, you know, when I was a kid, how many of you kids have heard your parents tell stories like that? And, get, and some of you kids roll your eyes, and you know, I know something, kids, let me just tell you right now, you're all going to do it. You're, you're going to grow up, and you're going to do it too. Because what you want to do is you want to say, I want to pull something from the past to teach something very poignant in the present. And so Paul, very much like a parent, loving this church, uh, wants to do this. And so he tells a story from the Old Testament, which we're about to read, and, and the reason he does this is because storytelling is very powerful. I'm going I'm to expand on that a little bit later. But living out of a certain narrative, believing a certain narrative, and then living out of it is incredibly powerful. And so it doesn't mean that the narrative isn't true or historical. It just means when it's told and framed in such a way, like you parents sit around their dinner table and you say to your kids, it's kind of like this. There's a power in that. And so of all of the Old Testament accounts that Paul could have gone to, throughout all scripture, he chooses a story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 90. God promises them a son. God promises that they will have more children than they can number in the stars. It is an impossible situation. 
And we know, of course, as the story unfolds, that Sarah is to give birth to Isaac, who is the son of promise. But Abraham and Sarah see this impossible situation. And Sarah says to Abraham, why don't you take my servant, sleep with her. She's young, she's fertile. Abraham does it. And the reason he does it with no hesitation, and I used to joke about this, you know, when I was younger because I didn't understand. She's kind of like, you know, take my servant, okay. You know, no hesitation, you know, father of faith. Well, it's not just because he looked at her and said, oh, she's young and fertile and that sounds like a great plan. But because the word, the name Abram in Hebrew means, uh, it means exalted father. So he has spent 99 years hearing his name and thinking about the impossibility of a situation. The fact that he's not a father. It's absolutely impossible. So that's the story that that Paul goes to. This is what we're going to pick up here. But the reason why Paul goes to it, of course, is because he's provoking the church to ask himself a question. Is justification something that God promises and God does? Or is justification something that God promises and you perform for? Is the salvation of God something that is to be left in Christ's capable hands? Or is the salvation of God something that's really hinging on the do-it-yourself project of your own hands? And here we are in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery, for she's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem from above is free, for she's our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers... We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is God's word. So Paul gives this story, tells this historical account, and he says you can look at this allegorically. It represents two covenants. He's contrasting the works and grace. He's contrasting law and gospel. This is the context of the letter. And Paul wants the church to leave the anxiety and the exhaustion of life under the law, and he wants them to enter into the assurance and the liberation of life under God's grace. And so, to awaken their hearts to trust in promise and not performance, he tells the story. Now, there's a a French writer and poet uh, named Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and to borrow from him, he says this, If you want to build a ship... You don't drum up people to collect wood, and you don't assign them tasks and works. But rather, you teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And Paul takes this story of Abraham and Sarah, and he inserts it in the middle of his teaching, because he wants the church to long for the endless immensity of God's grace. So that's why he tells the story. The French poet philosopher says, if you want people to build a boat, you don't give them jobs. You tell them 
this fantastic narrative that captivates their hearts, that makes them want to build the boat. Paul is saying, I want you to understand the magnitude of God's grace of what you've been given. And out of that great narrative, your life is going to flow and you're going to live life out of that that new narrative. And so the gospel teaches you and I to marvel at the endless immensity of God's grace and that it engenders our heart to live in light of that. And so when he gives this parental analogy and he talks about Abraham and Sarah, he's inviting them to imagine. That's why I told the story. He's inviting them to remember he's re- and he's inviting them to, to reflect. He wants them to live out of certain narratives. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use another guy's uh, philosophy to kind of explode w- why Paul is being stro- so strategic here. He's a Scottish philosopher and his name is Alasdair MacIntyre. And he was writing on virtue and he said this, I cannot answer the question, what should I do, unless I know what story I'm a part of. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing unless I know whose story I'm a part of. And what Paul is doing with Abraham, the story of Abraham and Sarah for the church is he's saying, the false teachers have come in, they've brought a false narrative, and now you're living in light of a false narrative. So now what I need to do is I need to remind you which story you're a part of. Because if I don't remind you which story you're a part of, you're going to live in exhaustion to the law. You're going to live in a burden to your works. You're going to, have, you're going to flip the script and your whole entire life before God is going to be ridden with guilt and insecurity and anxiety because who's doing enough? So he says, I have to give you a new narrative so you can live out of the new narrative. So just like that Scottish philosopher says, how do I know what I'm supposed to do unless I know what story I'm a part of? Paul goes, I need to remind you exactly what story you're a part of, so that you can live out of the freedom of that story. Hence, it goes back to re-narrate their identity. Worship for you and I, church, week in and week out, Sunday in and Sunday out, is coming out of the business of your lives, the stress of your jobs, the battles of relationships, you know, the ups and downs of everything you're going through, to come, to sit, to rest, and be reminded of the narrative that you've been called into. To be reminded of this great narrative of God's grace, that you are God's children, so that you can breathe in that oxygen and leave, and then live in the city with freedom and boldness out of that narrative. We are coming to worship to have our hearts re-narrated. To borrow from Dr. James K. Smith, who you've heard me uh, quote lots because I've been recently introduced to him and really appreciate his work. He talks about how our worship is not so much something that we come to do as much as it is coming to have something done to us. And so Paul sees the church getting off the gospel script and he goes, I got to remind you of something that has been done for you graciously. So he goes to Abraham and Sarah. And it's beautiful and it's incredible. So here's today's sermon and sentence. It's this. It's that God met the impossibility of our condition with a gracious solution. We don't do love and good works to secure his grace. We do love and good works because our hearts are being animated by his grace. And so by giving this account and telling the story of Abraham and Sarah, Paul is really contrasting two things, and this is what we're going to look at this morning from the text. The first thing we're going to look at is the impossible impossible nature of our condition. And the second thing we're going to look at is the gracious nature of God's solution. So he starts off in verse 21, and he says, those of you who want to be under the law, do you listen to the law? Are you even listening? 
It's such a fantastic uh, statement. He says, you're not listening. In fact, because you're not listening, I'm going to tell you a story to show you how much you're not listening. Your ability to keep God's law for salvation, your ability to work enough so that God is happy with you. Hmm, what's that like? That's like being 99 years old and having a 90-year-old spouse and then having a child. That's the likelihood. That's what Paul's doing here. You who are under the law, are you listening to the law? Let me help you out. Those of you who think you're going to work, somehow d- develop this, this piety and this righteousness through loving your neighbor, and that's what's making God happy? Let me tell you what that's like. He says, there's no amount of this is going to help you. If you're 99 and your spouse is 90, there, there's no amount of running around the tent, lighting candles, listening to Ed Sheeran. There's no amount of it that's going to help the situation. It's not going to work, Right? You it's not going to work. And Abraham can't, there's nothing he can do. Right? Until we're old and gray. You know? It's not going to work. He can't, he can't manufacture anything. So Paul says, let me paint a picture for you. The righteousness that God requires can't be developed over time. It's got to be received by grace. What God actually requires of us, we can't, We can't self-generate. It's got to be given. And when you think about this, we can fall into this again today. It's it's not just, we're not just reading something from from the church in Galatia and say, boy, it was really crazy that those guys couldn't get it. But, you know, I remember not too long ago, I was in a a particular place listening to somebody teach on the Sermon on the Mount, and and the way that they taught it, they got to the end, and where, of course, the, the the climax of it is, is verse 548, where Jesus says, after the Sermon on the Mount, he says, be perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect. Right? And their, their, their take on that was, see, so we can. God wouldn't ask us to do something that we couldn't do. Oh, yes, he can. That's kind of what he's been doing from the beginning, to push us to our knees, to be like, who can be perfect? You, know, you don't even need the Greek to know the word perfect means you've arrived, right? Which is precisely what it means in the Greek. It doesn't mean, you can't spin it and be like, well, when he says be perfect, what he means is just be more mature and grow. And It's not a developing word. It's to be completed, lacking nothing. And he says, you know how God is? Be like that. Lacking nothing. But Jesus commanded that. He said, after the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that's what he said. What's going on here? Well, because there was a guy named Moses who was on a mountain who gave the law. And now you've got Jesus on the mountain giving the law. But of course you've got Moses on the mountain who couldn't fulfill the law. But then you've got Jesus, the one standing on the mountain, who's going to be crucified on another mountain to fulfill the law. So the whole point of saying be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect is, to, is for that crowd not to be like, okay then. Thanks Jesus for the little pick-me-up. <clears throat> we had two readings of the law. We just got a third one. Let's do it. Pitter-patter, get at her. Sola bootstraps up. It's not what's going on. He wants them to be like, who can do this? And Jesus is like, I'm the one that's came to do it for you. And so Paul says, you're not even listening to the law, those of you who want to be under it. Because if you knew what it required, you wouldn't want to be under it. You would be running to Jesus. And so then in verse 22 to 25, he says, you know, this represents two covenants. There's two ways to relate to God. Right? You're accepted and blessed through faith in Christ's work, or else you're trusting and putting all your faith in your own work. And so when Abraham sleeps with Hagar, the, that servant, the, the slave of the household, when he, when he says, okay, this is impossible, I don't know how you and I are going to have a son, she's fruitful, it's possible with her. When Abraham does that, when he's demonstrating um, 
his belief that God's promise needs his contribution. That's the problem in Galatia. That's exactly what they're doing. God made a promise, and guess what? God's promise needs my contribution. That's what the false teachers were teaching. So Paul goes, how can I show you a picture of this? You see what Abraham did? That's not how it works. The one who made the promise is capable of keeping the promise. Otherwise, it's no promise. And so, and so uh, he, unpacks it, he unpacks it in that way. Paul's kind of saying to the church, I've already seen this movie. I already know how it ends. And it's not good. Guys, you've got to go back and place your, your faith and your trust in Christ. And so he uses this slavery language again. You see it there again in verse 21 and 22. Paul uses the slavery language. It's so, it's so hard to hear it. Why does he... It's so harsh. Why does he use it? It's because obedience, the belief that obedience to God is earning his acceptance is toxic. It's slavery. But the idea that all of our obedience to God is flowing from the fact that we're already accepted because Christ did everything, that obedience is freedom. So you see, the false teachers and Paul, they both called the church to obedience, but they did it from two completely different positions. The false teachers were constantly calling them to obedience because everything was riding on their obedience. It was toxic. It was slavery. It was slavish. It was, it was about earning. If I taught week in and week out, Sunday after Sunday, the obedience to God's word the way the false teachers did, you guys would leave here and you'd feel worse than when you came. And it's scriptural for me to use that kind of language because that's what the, that's what the false teachers were doing. They were burdening the church. They felt worse when they left than when they came. But if I call you to the obedience of Christ from freedom because Christ has already done it, your obedience is not earning you anything. Your obedience is actually how you go into the city and you actually enjoy your freedom and you flourish and you love your neighbor and and you live to the glory of the one who saved you, but you're not earning anything. That's freedom. That's liberating. And so Paul uses this slavish language to draw this picture. And that's why in verse 25, he says, if you look down at it, you'll notice he says, Hagar's on Mount Sinai. Notice that? It's not incidental. That mountain was where the law was given. And then he talks about but the new Jerusalem. And he doesn't, he's not talking about the political city Jerusalem. He uses the word Jerusalem from above. So Paul's making a contrast. They've got the law. And then you've got Jerusalem from above. Grace. He says we're free. The grace of Christ has, has, has done it. So Paul's making that, that contrast for us. And then in verse 29, he compares this conflict to the way, the way that those brothers and the genealogy of those brothers played out. Because Abraham and Sarah had these two sons. With Hagar, they have Ishmael, who was not the son of promise. He was the son by Abraham's flesh. I can work it out, do it myself. But then God does his miracle and provides uh, Ishmael. And then Paul says in verse 29, the, 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 the generations after those brothers were con- in constant conflict. And then Paul says, and it's even that way to this day. So in the in, at the time of his writing of Galatians, those, those, uh, the genealogies of two, those two brothers continued to be in conflict. Right? The, the same is true today when we look at uh, the, the landscape of the Middle East, Middle East in terms of the conflict that is continually coming as a result of uh, those two generations uh, and how they played out. But what Paul is actually doing here is he's, he's, the conflict he's trying to uh, draw their attention to is he's saying, you see that conflict there between the two brothers? That's the conflict religious hearts have with grace. Look at that. Look at the context. He says, the religious heart is always in conflict with grace 
because the religious heart wants to have a merit badge by keeping the law. And grace comes and says, Christ has done it, and the religious heart says, I have a problem with this grace stuff you're talking about. I've got to have a contribution. Don't tell me that I'm not contributing anything. He says they're always going to have a conflict. And the reason is because the gospel of grace is threatening to the religious heart because it tells the religious heart their deeds are worthless for, for saving them. And who of us wants to hear, you know, well, the, the good life that I'm living, and you know, I'm living a life of love, I'm, living, I'm being generous, I'm doing all these great things. Isn't that worth something? Well, it's not vertically, it isn't. Horizontally, it's fantastic for that person that you're being generous to and you're loving and you're caring for and you're in the city, you're having compassion on the poor, or you hear about a need here in, in this room, in this church, and you're like, you know what, I can actually, I can help that person. I, can, I have the ability to, to care for them in that way. That's all horizontal and that's all beautiful. But the religious heart has a problem with grace because none of those things are vertical. They're not earning us anything vertically. And the religious heart can't handle that. So Paul says that conflict between the law and grace is just like these two warring brothers that have constantly been in conflict. And so he draws that picture. You know, God's grace is like music to the ears of those who know they need it, but grace is like nails on a chalkboard for those who think they used to need it. See, the false teachers, they weren't saying deny Christ. The false teachers were saying yes to Christ, yes, but he also needs this. And Paul says, i got to tell you a little story. Once upon a time, there was a guy who was 99 years old and he thought he could have self-salvation and control everything and bring about, bring about the promise through his performance once upon a time. Right? It goes back to that historical account to reveal that. And so then in verse 30, Paul actually quotes Sarah, which she uses these harsh words, because you can imagine, if you go back to Genesis and read the story, she says to her husband, I can't give you children, I'm too old, sleep with her. He goes, okay, sounds good. He sleeps with the slave woman, and she conceives. And then what does Sarah do? Sarah's angry. And Sarah says to Abraham, cast out, and she's mad. Cast out that slave woman. Now, we don't have time to unpack it, but God was actually kind of gracious and merciful, merciful to Hagar. But Sarah, though, her heart, she's like, cast him out. So what does Paul do? Paul lifts that language. And he goes, you know what you need to do with this false teaching? Cast it out. When that teaching comes and that, that says that Christ's work needs to be topped up by your work, toss it. Cast it away. That's what Paul says that we need to do with that kind of idea. We have to reject that false teaching. Although, and, the, and the reason, of course, is because if you think about, think about the implications of, that, of this playing out. If you believe that the life of love that you're living is the gospel instead of it being a result of the gospel, then all of your serving is actually self-serving. And everything that you do, you're going to have one eye on the clouds going, I hope God, did you see that? I mean, did you see what I just did? I mean, it's impossible to love your neighbor if you think that loving your neighbor is earning something from God. You can only love your neighbor when you're not concerned about earning anything from God. So the irony of all of this is that the irreligious person, the person that doesn't believe in God at all, has a better capacity for loving their neighbor than a religious person who thinks they're earning. Because the, the person who 
does not have their faith in Christ and does not believe in God, just helps their neighbor fix their fence because the fence needs fixing. But the religious person can't even do that because they fix the fence and they look at the clouds and they go, you saw that, right? There's another jewel coming, right? You understand? It's anything but loving. It's anything but serving. In 1520, Luther wrote a treatise on good works. And in the treatise, Luther said, God does not need our good works. Our neighbor does. And before the law asks what good should be done, grace has already done it. And he wrote that in 1520 because as he was starting to, to get an idea that, wait a minute, we're not actually earning anything here. God gave everything. We're now living freely. That's the picture of the impossible nature of our condition, and which leads us to the second thing, which is the gracious nature of God's solution. You see, Sarah was barren. We are all Sarah. We are all barren. We're all incapable. That's the point of Paul's allegory here. It is hard and hard and, and harsh if, uh, and you maybe have friends and loved ones who want to have children and can't have children. And it's hard. All of us spiritually are barren. Paul uses this because in the Old Testament they would say that the womb, the, the, the vernacular was, the womb was dead. We're all dead. But in God's great grace, he brings life from death. He's always brought life from death. Because, spiritually speaking, dead people are all that there are. And so, this totally inescapable situation is a picture of all of us. And so, Hagar and the the, the child that Abraham had with her is a picture of Abraham trying to deal with his barrenness himself, trying to deal with the deadness himself. Us, falling back into the idea of works, getting the, the nod from heaven, is like us trying to deal with our barrenness ourselves. Sarah is actually a picture of failure by ancient standards. The Bible doesn't condone uh, talking about women like they're failures in that way. The Bible doesn't condone uh, devaluing women who couldn't have children. But the culture did. And so the Bible reports on the culture. And the culture was that if you couldn't have a child, you were a failure. You weren't worth anything. I was in a lecture with Dr. Gerald uh, Bray, who is a historian, and he said that in the ancient culture, and the the Greco-Roman culture kept this, if you wanted to divorce your wife for any reason, one could be that she couldn't have children, this is how you did it. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And if you did that, the deed was done. That's all it required. and That's a tragedy. Sarah... In this place of desperation, incapable of doing anything about our situation, that's us. And God's solution was gracious because we are Sarah, all of us. And so when God did give Abraham and Sarah that son of promise, Isaac, who's foreshadowing Jesus, the ultimate son of promise who would come, God took what was dead and he brought life out of it. And God has always brought death from life. And he's writ this large even in nature. Seeds fall to the ground. It's springtime. And they're going to die, but then life is going to come from death. The sun sets every day, and our bodies cannot go 24-7. We have to lay down and shut our eyes and go into darkness. But then in the morning we rise. Writ large into our lives as humans is resurrection, life and death, God bringing life from death. 
And this picture of Sarah is, is just that. And the reason why this is important is because if being justified by our works was possible, then it would only be for the fertile. The strong, the morally strong, the capable, the ones who are put together, the ones who don't have a checkered past, they're the ones. But of course the problem is they'd have to be that 24-7, which is none of us. And so the good news of the gospel is that the gospel is for the barren. The gospel is for the failure. The gospel is for the one who, who can't save themselves, which is all of us. It's not for the ones who are getting it all together. I drove by a church sign not too long ago, and the church sign said, God doesn't expect perfection. And I read that, and I thought, I should just drive up on the lawn and drive over the sign. Because you just erased Jesus. The whole point of the gospel is that the God of perfection created us in perfection. Our sin brought damnation, and he wants to be with us so badly. He provided perfection for us so that we could be with him. That's the whole point of the gospel, is that it's not, it's, it's, it's for the Sarahs. It's for the ones who can't. The, the church isn't the gathering of the good. The church is the gathering of all those who confess they're not good by God's perfect standard. And we rest in his great grace, and then we live out of that, live out of that narrative. And so we're invited back through the story of Abraham and Sarah to be re-narrated. Because God's original plan, when you think back to the garden, he's, he has reoriented you back into. The original plan was that you would go into the city with your family and your children and your friends and your vocation and your gifts and your faculties and your abilities, and you would, as an image-bearer of God, enjoy life with God, develop civilization to the glory of God, use all of your gifts in the city and enjoy God, and by the great grace of Jesus Christ, you've been brought back into that beautiful, gracious gospel narrative. So that now we leave this place because God has given us grace, because we, like Sarah, were barren and we received what we didn't deserve. And now we leave this place and we go and we do all of those beautiful and wonderful things in the city, living in the freedom of God's redemptive plan. That God's plan for our lives is not a, a, a specific vocation. God's plan for our lives is a position that we stand in, that we enjoy, that we live from, that we live out of that narrative. You think about this. Any marketer that's worth their salt knows you don't just give information to sell the product. You don't say, this is our product, and it does this, and it does that, and it also does that, and it does that. Who's excited? Fire that person. The marketing, the, the marketer tells a narrative and says, can you see yourself in this narrative? Do you see this lifestyle? Can't you see yourself driving this? Because that's the lifestyle. Can't you see yourself wearing this? Because that's the, that's the narrative. By buying into this, you're living into this narrative. That's the whole point of marketing. Parents, when we sit around and we say to our children, guys, once when I was a kid, this happened and whatever, and we're inviting them to begin to see themselves in the narrative. Preaching. It's not just welcome to church, whatever you did this week, good job guys, but let's try a little harder, Monday's coming. Because we all know there's more that can be done, right? 
We all know whatever praying you did last week, you do more this week. Whatever Bible reading you did last week, you do more this week. However you love your neighbor last week, you probably, you probably walk by people on the street and blah, blah, blah. Maybe this week you do... That's not, the, that's not the chief aim of preaching the gospel. It's to remind the church of this narrative of grace. You're now living into that. What God created at the beginning, he has restored and we get to now live out of. And this is the gracious nature of God's solution to our impossible situation. And so I close with this. Church, because of the great grace of God, because Jesus lived the life we could never live and his substitutionary death atoned for all of our sin and his divine resurrection gives us hope, there were actually men and women and students and kids going into this city loved with a love that is so deep and so rich, death itself doesn't, isn't even going to hold us. That's, that reorients our narrative. That changes the freedom, the peace, the joy, the grace and our weakness that we get to engage and love our neighbor with. It's a, it changes absolutely everything. We go into the city with great confidence that we're God's children. We go into the city with great humility because we didn't do anything to become God's children. And we enjoy his provision from rest and renewal. God's promise is not attained and validated by our works, but Christ's works. And we live under this beautiful banner that reads, It is finished. Let's pray together.